Turn in your Bibles to John's epistle, his first epistle, 1 John. And our text this morning goes, it's at the end of chapter 2, verses 28 through 29. I'll read through verse 3 of chapter 3. Give your attention to the Word of God. <clears throat> and now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who, has, who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And Father, we do pray your blessing upon the reading of your word and its application to our hearts and lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Abiding as children of God. What does that mean? To abide means uh, to remain constant and steadfast. To abide means to be in an unchanging uh, position. Our text, in our text, John the Apostle, writing many years after his gospel of John, after the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus, uh, gives instruction to a church that is experiencing growing hostility from the world. And in verse 28, he gives us the reason, the reasons, rather, for abiding in Christ. He's already talked about the Antichrist and what will occur when the Antichrist or the many Antichrists come and how believers must be prepared for uh, that event. And, and as I pointed out last Sunday, we are much closer to that time than we were when the Holy Spirit moved John to write this epistle. That it is the last hour that that uh, he, he will come and believers will uh, uh, must be prepared and that many 
who profess faith and trust in Christ will be uh, led astray and their profession uh, will be revealed as merely that and not a true possession. This is uh, happening in our world at a rate that is hard to comprehend. I, I'm so encouraged to see this wonderful group of young people here uh, singing the praises of God. What a privilege it is to hear you and what a privilege it is for you to have this opportunity. And I hope you always take it to heart because so many of your contemporaries and so many uh, that we know in the church, so many young people have walked away from the faith. We know in our own families. We know among our friends and among our peers this event uh, that is uh, repeated constantly in the social media of um, deconversion, that that would have ever been such a thing. And the pace of, of this falling away seems to be rapidly increasing as we are treated daily with some new um, desire to institute the paganism that is the current worldview of much of our culture. This is exactly analogous to the time that John wrote. Many were walking away, at that term, walking away from the faith. John told us earlier why they're walking away. They went out from us because they were not of us. They never truly possessed faith in Christ alone for salvation. And so therefore, they walked away. John gives a strong encouragement for not walking away. And that encouragement is to abide in Christ. He gives, in verse 28, reason. The reason for abiding in him. One is implicit and one is specific. The implicit reason is we abide in Christ because Jesus holds us in his hand. That's uh, the implicit thing. John wrote about this uh, in this gospel, chapter 10, in verse uh, 27 and following. Uh, he writes about, the, first he writes about the good shepherd who knows his sheep by name and calls them out by name. And then he talks about uh, him holding his disciples in his hand. And then he talks about the father holding them in his hand. And therefore, if he, you are held in his hand, nothing can snatch you from Jesus. If you are truly abiding in Christ, it's not because you did something to abide in Christ. It's because of what he did for you to engraft you into his uh, family by adoption. We'll get to that in a minute. The reason you abide is because you were truly held by Jesus. You live for him because you are united to him through the faith that he has given you. Abiding means believing. And if your trust and believing means trusting and having your confidence in Christ, 
And if you are doing that, when he appears, you will have great confidence. And so another reason for abiding in Christ in the midst of a world that is literally falling apart before our eyes is the confidence that it gives us. Think about it. If the Lord Jesus holds me in his hand, there is nothing that can take me away from him. And in that same passage in John chapter 10, Jesus goes further. He says, the Father holds you in his hand as well. And the work of that work of him holding you is not accomplished by you. It is accomplished by the sovereign Holy Spirit. He talked about that earlier in, in his gospel in chapter 3, right? When Nicodemus, one of those secret followers of Jesus and among the Pharisees, came to him at night, knowing who Jesus truly was, he said, what, what must I do to be saved? And, he, and, he, and Jesus answers, as he often does indirectly, you don't, you don't see the wind, do you? You see the effect of it. You must be born from above. You, you must literally have a change from God. And if, you have, if you're changed by him, if you're born again by faith in him, then you will see a change in your life. You abide because you're held by Jesus. You're, you abide because you're held by the Father. Now, I dare say... I, I, I don't know any weightlifters, bodybuilders here. If there were one here, if they were holding something in his hand, it would take every one of us uh, to maybe get it out of his hand. That's, that's true. That would be one illustration. But a better illustration is the th three-year-olds. We had three-year-olds. If they had something tightly in their grip, <laughs> it would take three or four of us to tackle them and wrestle them to the ground. The confidence it should give you in the midst of a fallen world. That it's not a not a not a, a child, it's not a weightlifter that holds you here. It's the eternal Son of God who spoke the universe into existence. Who with the Father, who also it tells us in that John 10 passage that He holds us in His hand as well. And this is John's. Uh, encouragement of abiding. If you know you're held and you're abiding in Christ, then you won't be fearful when he comes. You won't shrink back at his coming. You won't be covered in shame because he holds you. And he who began, began to hold you will hold you for all eternity. What is the evidence in verse 28 of that, of those reasons? The evidence is you're not ashamed. That's the devil's tactic. He covers, he covers people with shame. Shame is such a debilitating emotion. 
it's so it's so dreadful. And we live in a culture because of all the all the garbage that's poured out on 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 us, and and I think of young people in particular, the temptations that are just dumped on us all from the culture. How how crippling the emotion of shame is. In fact, if if, if left untreated by the gospel, it drives us away from. Uh, abiding in Christ. It's not that. It's that we never truly came to know the love of the Father, the love of the Son of God for us. And this is what Jesus says in Mark's Gospel, chapter 8. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me. And, that, and that's what we have in this culture. The culture wants us to make, make us ashamed of the Bible. It wants us to make us ashamed of Jesus. It wants us to make um, us be ashamed of, of, of the truth, the absolute truth of the scripture is, as uh, is applied to all of life. Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he appears in the glory of his Father with the holy angels, meaning at his second coming. If you are held by Christ, you are abiding in him, you're not ashamed. Second, the result of this abiding is righteousness. Again, to, to abide means to stay. To abide means you're not moving. To abide means you're remaining. It's those, what are we to say to those who, who are, are so-called walking away today? We're, we're saying they never had true faith in, to begin with. Temporary faith leaves Christ alone and walks away. True righteousness comes from above, from the Holy Spirit being poured out. And again, Jesus tells the, the wise man of Israel, Nicodemus, how, how do you know that you've been born from above? How do you know that you've been born again? Uh, you see the effect of it. You see the work of the Holy Spirit and the fruit that it produces. We, we are guilty sometimes of preaching a partial gospel. We know Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We can quote it. For by grace you're saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We can, we can, uh, we can say that, and, just, and it should just roll off a believer's lips. But sometimes we stop and we don't go to verse 10. That we're created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. The truth of the, the great truth of the gospel is that you have no ability at all in and of yourselves to do one thing that will commend you to God. Not one thing. All of your righteous deeds are like filthy rags in the sight of God. And if you are able to do anything good, it's because he has created in you 
through the Holy Spirit, union with Christ that enables you to walk in righteousness. If you are truly abiding in Christ, you will seek by the grace of God to be righteous. And what does it mean to be righteous? It means to keep his commandments, to memorize and meditate on his law, his Ten Commandments, and to turn them over constantly in your mind and heart. That's what it means to abide in Christ. It also means that you'll be rejected by the world. Verse 1 of chapter 3. That's the end of it. I'm skipping ahead of myself. We, we have such love. First, before we get to what the world thinks of us, we think we see what God thinks of us. And here's this beautiful picture of the love of the Father for his children. And what, what picture is it? It's the picture of adoption. I can't help but we just recently finished a series of messages from Ezekiel of all things. But that incredible picture in Ezekiel chapter 16 of, of adoption of, of Israel. God's adoption of Israel. How he saw her. Exposed on the side of the road. Filthy, dirty, a child who about to die. Not, not attended to. It's covered in blood and and, and filth and God walks by and sees this child and speaks to this child the words live and he takes that child and, and makes it his own by adoption and that's the nation of Israel he's talking about but by extension that's every child of God God didn't God didn't see how wonderful you were and decide to adopt you. No, he saw you in your ruin, in your mess, in your filth, and decided to set his love upon you. He saw you in your addiction. He saw you in your and your abusive personality. He saw you in your anger and your hatred. He saw you in whatever besetting sin that you identify with the most. And he saw it and he said to you, live. And then he began to clean you. And that's why we confessed about sanctification today because I, I thought it would be helpful because this, is, this, this righteousness is ongoing. It begins when we put our faith in Christ, but it never stops. He is constantly working in us righteousness. And I sometimes I believe our young people get discouraged. They, they make a profession of faith and all of a sudden they think they're going to be perfect. And that is, that is not the gospel. It's a part of the gospel. And we forget to teach that, that sanctification process that begins after we are made righteous. And that God 
who began a work in us will continue it. And he's not going to leave us or forsake us. And when we are uh, like a, a, a sheep that runs away into the ditch, he's going to find us and pull us out. And he's going to do it not once, not twice, but he's going to do it again and again until our last exhale on earth or until he comes for us in glory. And because of what he has done, we need not be ashamed. Behold. The old King James says behold. Mine doesn't say behold. It says see. I don't like see as much as I like behold because it is an imperative sense. It should say behold. What we we uh, what kind of love that, that he has given to us that we should be called children of God. I do not get the American fascination with royalty over in Britain, but some of you probably like that stuff. I've read too much history to be fascinated about any kind of royalty. You should you just read the history of the kings of Israel in the Bible, and that should disabuse you of, of that. But everybody's fascinated about the royal court and Prince Charles becoming King Charles. Has that happened yet? No. It's, it's about to happen. And, and I, I hear all kinds of things, uh, uh, peripheral issues. But some people think that's a big deal. And they marvel that some people would set that aside. They have some kind of royal lineage from the king and, and uh, or the queen, whichever. Do, do you see what the scripture is saying here? He's adopted you. See, see what kind of love the Father has for you? You're a child of God. That makes you a prince. That makes you a princess in the court of heaven. And there's no greater, no greater privilege in the universe. It's so far beyond being a prince or princess in England. It's so far beyond being that in any place in the world. It's so far beyond being the, the star athlete or the greatest singer or whatever this world uh, holds out as a, uh, as a shiny object of worship. It's so far beyond that. That's, that's who you are. And I think sometimes we get that a little bit and we think, well, we're pretty good. We're more than pretty good. We're perfect in God's sight if we're a child of God. <laughs> he's adopted us. He's made us royalty. We, the scripture over and over uses this metaphor and pushes it to the, to the outer limits. And that, that gives us an identity that is so far beyond any identity that you might have in this world. In fact, it is such that it is the reason the world hates you. If you're a child of God, know this, the world hates you. This world system of the, of, uh, that we live in hates us. And Jesus
Jesus says, when they hated uh, me, they hated me when I came, they're certainly going to hate you as well. We should not spend any time looking for the world's affirmation and approval because we already have ultimate affirmation and approval from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And nothing, nothing in this world could ever substitute for that. This world system that is arrayed against Christ that is arrayed against his people, that is arrayed against the church, that so many would sell their spiritual birthright for, the message from the scripture is that it is that it's already failed. In fact, if you are hated and are experiencing hostility from the world, Wear it as a badge of honor. Don't whine about it. We have so many whiners in the church. Oh, they're saying bad things about me. Well, hallelujah. If they're saying bad things about you because of your righteousness and you're taking a stand and conviction for what Christ has said and what he has done, Jesus said rejoice and be glad. Because this shows that you do belong to the Father. The radical transformation that results from spiritual union with Christ that he began in you will continue to grow and give you confidence. And to the point that you don't think or you don't guess. Verse uh, 2 here says, you'll know. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. What a precious promise to wrap your heart around and your mind around. And, and further, if you have that hope in you, it will purify you. It will purify you as it through what through the purity of Christ. That's the message. God made us to be hopeful. This this is the blessed hope that sometimes. Theologians call the second coming the blessed hope. That's what that's the that's the message here. This blessed hope. Hope is uh, hope doesn't get enough uh, attention from the scripture. I'm, I'm convinced. Um, it's one of it's one of the most neglected of Christian graces and virtues. But hope, hope we're, we're made. The Holy Spirit puts hope in us. Not only for when Christ appears, but for our daily lives. God made us to be future-oriented. Hope is, we, we, we have, we, we're always looking forward to something. I know, I know this choir was looking forward to this trip and the 
And now some of the leaders are looking forward to it being over, right? Yeah. <laughs> that was terrible. <laughs> when we're going through but when we're going through a trial and deep suffering, we hope it ends. We have hope that it will end. It's not going to continue. When we are looking forward to things in our life, we're hopeful. And and some of us are at the stage where we just hope we can wake up in the morning. What a blessed hope if we have that hope. But far beyond that blessing is the, is the eternal hope. The greatest hope of all is union with Christ forever in his presence when he comes. If you have that hope in you, you're purified. The text says you're purified as he is pure. Because that means you're united with Christ and you don't dread his coming. You hope for it. You long for it. And you long for it not just for yourself, but for all. I was in Army Chaplain School. They, they did, we did suicide prevention training. And, and this, the, what we learned, surprise, is the emotion, the single most important emotion to deal with someone who's worried about taking their life is hope. Hopelessness is always the attending emotion when someone takes their life. And so the most important thing, if you have a friend, a family member, someone you know who has said something like that, you need to, you need to concentrate on hope. The, 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 the hope that this situation, this, this overwhelming emotion will pass and you will get better. And that should be easy for the believer, but there are many sincere believers through history who have struggled with this. This is a virtue that just doesn't automatically come sometimes. We have to, it has to be cultivated in the heart. But, and that's what John is saying. It looks, it looks bad. All these people are leaving the church, and the church is being overrun with all these uh, false teachers and antichrist and, and, uh, and, and horrible lifestyles. What, are we, what do we do? And he, the answer is, from the Holy Spirit through John, is look up to the blessed hope of his coming. That is what makes you pure. If you're a child of God through faith in Christ, finished work, you have the greatest hope of all. And that is eternity as a son or daughter of God in heaven forever. I would close by asking you, do you have that blessed hope? Is it what motivates you for life here? And for eternity, let us pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to open your word, to hear it read and expound it morning and evening. We pray that the Holy Spirit would do uh, his work in us to conform us more into the image of Christ. If anyone here has yet 
to come to that place in their life where they have fully trusted in him? May, may they not walk past him to the place where they know him as he is, the eternal Son of God, seated at your right hand, reigning, putting all of his enemies and our enemies under his feet. Father, we delight in Jesus this morning. May we, in response to this great good news, offer acceptable worship and an acceptable response by giving our whole life in thanksgiving to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.